Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I decided to do my first aerial of a clear, which is a no-go. I had a hole in my parachute so big I could I could crawl through it. So even though, you know, I massively messed up and, and this happened... It was all the training, quick reactions, being focused on on getting out of this situation that led me to, to walk away at the end of the day. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Tim Howell. Tim is a para-alpinist. An expert rock, ice and alpine climber, Tim is also an extremely accomplished base jumper and wingsuit pilot. He seeks out first and remote exits and combines his aerial skills with decades of expedition and military experience. Speaking of which, Tim was a Royal Marine in his early 20s. He received specialist mountain training and was the elite amongst the elite. In this conversation, we talk about his quest to become the first person to climb and jump from the six classic north faces of the Alps, as well as why he chose to head to the front line to do his bit after Putin invaded Ukraine. Controversial, yes, but well articulated and a real insight into the mind of someone who believes passionately in living a life on their terms and doing what they believe to be right. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Tim Howell. So, Mr. Howell. Good morning. I think we should start at the start. Who are you and what do you do? I find that really hard to describe nowadays. Um, I don't want to describe myself by what I did in the past, but what I'm doing currently, I just spend time in the mountains and uh, try and get by doing that. So creating kind of projects for myself and uh, and finding ways to keep the uh, keep the mortgage going by doing that. So you are, for want of a better phrase, a professional athlete? Um, I mean, athlete is pretty far flung, isn't it? But I, I suppose if, if I'm making my money doing this, then it is somewhat professional, but yeah. And what, when, okay. So outside of the work 
angle mm. and how you make your money what do you actually literally do with your days um i mean there is there's a lot of hustling trying to make productions happen make projects happen trying to find money whether it's selling um photos articles whatever it is um but yeah there's, there's a lot of planning that goes into the projects and the um and the things that i do so if the weather isn't good and, and i'm out on the mountain then i'm i'm planning it and when it comes to i mean when you say spending time in the mountains what does that mean with what on your feet or on your back um absolutely everything so you know my i think my niche is wingsuiting uh, in remote high altitude places around the world um including you know on my doorstep in chamonix and the swiss alps um but you know i'd, I'd still enjoying skiing and, and ice climbing and rock climbing big wall climbing um i would say you know i'm not particularly good at any of those but um i like i like to push myself you know and i think my nicheness comes from you know, trying to find these projects that are lesser known about or, you know, climbing with Waldo on the, um, on the longest rock climb in Africa in Malawi, thing, things like that. You know, people haven't really heard about that, but it's, it's, a, it's a big adventure. So you're not, you're not peak bagging and tagging the, you know, the big famouses around the world. It's more personal than that. Yeah, there, there is a little bit of that as well. Um, but putting my own twist on it, like like recently Aconcagua, and um, my own little twist on that was trying to find the first wingsuit flight from the mountain. So we actually didn't didn't manage to summit. Um, I thought the summit was going to be the the easy part. It's a it's a long hike, <laughs> but it was a, it was a lot tougher than we thought. But and then I thought the wingsuit flight was actually going to be really really tough, really demanding. But um, but actually it was it was definitely the more simpler of the two um to kind of organize and, and um with my experience it was yeah we pulled it off pretty smoothly that's interesting i didn't know that i'm surprised i'm not surprised you didn't summit because it's weather it's conditions it's all of that stuff yeah yeah what happened how come you didn't um so on, on next after climbing and jumping the six north face of the alps i thought uh something a little bit bigger harder more remote would be the seven summits um so we did Kilimanjaro which was we, we did it via a different route I wanted to put you know a little bit um a spin on it make it a little bit harder do something a little bit more remote so we did the Arrow Glacier route up Breach Wall <clears throat> um and something that was wasn't a drama it was you no know, it, it was beautiful but it, it wasn't we didn't really have to push ourselves that much but the the wingsuit flight wasn't viable um because of the high altitude weather the winds the, the the cloud um and also the logistics you know these mountains are so big if you jump off and fly one direction and you're you're limited to where you can land so from where you land you then got to meet up with a team you've got to get your kit back you've got to get back on the on the main route etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's a lot more to it um so we thought with Aconcagua, it would be the same. You know, the summit would be tough, but but feasible. And the wingsuit jump would be just so many moving parts to it. It would be really complicated to, to get done. But um, 
the day that we had for our summit push, it was mega windy, wind chill minus 30. There was nobody else on the on the hill that day. So breaking trail through through a lesser known route, um, Polish glacier traverse or something. Um, and yeah, it just had the better of us. So um, yeah, the next day we got up pretty early and our base camp was, uh, sorry, our camp was at camp two below the Polish glacier. And I'd wreckied an exit point the day before. So we could wake up 20 minutes. So I was on the exit point geared up and uh, ready to fly. And then we're getting into this sort of heavy side of things faster than normal. But And I asked this question with kindness. But do you, do you consider that a failure? Yeah. Um, so I like to look at projects like that where I have a team with me um it's it's always a team accomplishment you know i wouldn't be able to do that jump if it wasn't for the team so when i say we jumped you know we pulled off the jump together as a team but i do like to prioritize the climb because it's something that the whole team can really work towards it's something i think is potentially less risky less dangerous um so i look at the climb as the focus and then I think, well, if we get the jump, it's a cherry on top. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if that's the main goal to summit, which it kind of was, then yeah, obviously that's a failure. We didn't, we didn't summit, um, and I got the extra little bonus on top, which you know does take it away a little bit from from the team accomplishment because it's it's me jumping. But um, yeah, you know that's. That's the way it is, I suppose. We 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 tried, and actually, something I thought about quite a bit on that on that um, on that climb was that people say, "Oh, well, you tried as hard as you could. You know, you gave it your all." And I don't think that's the case, and I don't think that should be the case because you know we we actually found a, a deceased climber next to our camp from a long time ago. And that's an example of somebody who really did give it his all, you know, and we never want to be in that situation, whether it's jumping or climbing. We always want to have a reserve um, and margin for error, you know. Yeah. And again, I'll backtrack in a minute and we'll do some of the more early days, early years stuff. But I think mm. one of the interesting things about you is, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you well-ish and that's not like the trip of a lifetime for you. It's not your only chance, <laughs> you know, like you're doing this yeah. all the time. Right. So I'm guessing failure is a very regular occurrence and part of the game. Massively, massively. Um, and you know, I, I never understood that phrase trip of a lifetime ever anyway. Like if you're describing something as a trip of a lifetime, it's the best trip there ever is. And if you, if it's that good and you really want to do it again, I'm sure you can make it happen. Like people who say, you know, I'd, I'd love to go wingsuiting or base jumping or climb this or climb that. Well, if you really want to do it that much, you can make it happen. Like it's kind of, I'm probably getting a little bit soppy now, but like people not believing themselves enough, you know, like it's, it's completely achievable, these things. So if you want it that bad, make it happen. But um, but yeah, back back to your point of of yeah, there's a lot of failure. So, so on my six north faces uh, climb and wingsuit jumps, I think the Drew I tried three times to climb the north face. 
Pisbedil twice. I tried three times to climb the the north face of the Matterhorn. And all of these were various different things, like partners getting injured and, and rescued on the hill. Um, the uh, rock fall, cutting a rope, storms. Um, and then we, one of the, the failures, um, inverted commas, of the, the wingsuit flight from the Matterhorn, <clears throat> we we climbed from the summit floor, uh, sorry, from the valley floor to the summit in, in one push. Uh, and we got to the summit and it was too windy for us. Um, and two of our friends actually climbed from the other side of the mountain, the Hornley Ridge, and were gearing up about to jump, good to go. And, you know, that took quite a bit for us to say, we're not comfortable with situations and we don't want to be sheep just because they're jumping doesn't mean we should. Um, so, yeah, after 12 hours of, of lugging all our kit up there, we said, nope turn around like let's let's be in control of our own decisions you know not not just jump because they are so yeah and it was absolutely fine for them you know i don't judge them everyone has their own uh, levels of risk versus reward but for us it wasn't right so went back down long day for that i find that mindset like fascinating and amazing and i won't be too nice to you but <laughs> i think it's not well i think it's rare actually to be you know I know a lot of people who do those sorts of things and I think you you might tell me you're not but you seem fairly immune to peer pressure group think or the pressure of a project um like overwhelming you it seems so calculated everything you do seems calculated I, I want everything I do to be calculated um but it's probably a little bit of my ego that's um, stopping me, be um, stopping my decisions being made by peer pressure. You know, peer pressure is is almost like a group of people saying you should do something, and I I don't let that happen anymore. I don't let people tell me what to do. <laughs> I've done enough of that in my military career, so. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm on the back foot nowadays, and if somebody tells me what to do, then then I question their authority, and um, yeah, and that only happens if I have a huge amount of respect for them. That that I I do what they tell me to do. That's really interesting. I wasn't expecting you to say that, and I think maybe that's a good yeah. That's... Just just thinking about it just then, I was thinking that's probably the reason why. <laughs> well, that's a good opportunity to backtrack, and I think it is worth giving some context on your military training and experiences because again not going to be too nice to you but you know you became elite and then you became elite within the elite as I understand it and I think it'd be good to understand or to hear those stories and and what you did and why yeah so it it all started um when I was 19 and 20 I lived in South Africa uh for two years as a as a game ranger as a guide in in the Kruger Park so that was as a huge amount of responsibility at the age of 19, you know, still a teenager with, with a rifle that can, can kill an elephant, taking clients around the bush, literally walking with them in, in big five territory. Um, so when that, that all, um, that all went to shit. Can I say that? <laughs> yes. That all, uh, yeah. Went down, down the, down the sinkhole. Um, 
because uh, President Zuma came into presidency, so he made it harder for me to renew my visa. The recession hit, so I wasn't making tips. Um, I got a death threat from one of my colleagues who who ended up killing himself and his wife. So it was all just like a mounting, adding up, time to leave. Um, so I left after two years and I, I knew my, my dad would be like, what are you doing for work? What is your career now? So I was just like, I joined the Marines, you know, and, and at the time I thought if you don't give up, then it will be easy, you know, and I still stand to that. If you don't give up and you just carry on, you know, it's not like a huge study fest or you know I, I i don't like studying you know and that's why i didn't go down the 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 avenue of becoming an officer because i knew that it would it would take not just physical and mental effort but you know a lot of studying a lot of so i was just like, i just become a marine um so yeah deployed to afghan um with in herrick 17 uh which is nothing crazy to be honest um, and then a few more deployments around the world, which were really interesting. And I joined the, the mountain leader branch. So it's, it's an opportunity you, in the Royal Marines, you have to choose a branch and that's everything from driver to sniper. Um, and the mountain leader branch, obviously I was climbing and base jumping and skydiving at the time. It really had an affinity to me. It was, it was something that, you know, I could continue my sports and, but it also meant that you could continue being a soldier. You know, if you're a driver or a clerk or a chef, you kind of stop becoming a soldier. Um, or you don't do as much soldiering. But but being in a recce troop, in a reconnaissance troop as a mountain leader, you, um, yeah, you know, your bread and butter is being a soldier. So. And what was that training like? And what skills did it give you that you didn't have, if any? So I always say the skills that I've converted from military life to, to what I do now is the mental side of things, not, not so much the techniques, you know. Um, I was climbing and base jumping already. So to be honest, if like I remember I did a, a winter deployment to Norway, which is, is, a, is a tough course, um, tent commander's course and, and winter warfare course. Um, but one day, uh, they teach me how to snowplow and the week before I'd skied the West flank of the Eiger <laughs> as a, you know, at home. So it, it was, I'm, I'm not going to say it was too much of a, a technical side of things that I learned, but the, the mental side of things is, is definitely, you know, attention to detail. The, the whole point that when, when you think you're done, you can always continue, you know, and that's, that's really helped um, when times get tough, you know. <laughs> Being uncomfortable is just a, a period of time that will always end and uh, you can crack on. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, having spoken to quite a few well, ex-Marines, ex-Special Forces and stuff, the, the, the crossover there is massive. It seems to be the thing that people have always taken away. But when did you know it was time to leave and why? And what did you want to go on to do? Um, I was, I was getting more opportunities outside, um, outside of the Marines and, and there were things that I wanted to do in certain times of the year or, or just take opportunities that I couldn't because you only have set 
uh, leave dates in the Royal Marines. And I just thought before I resent being in the Marines, you know, I, I, sh I should probably leave, you know. Um, you know, when, when conflicts are, are going on around the world, the recruitment skyrockets. You know, most people join the Marines because they they want to serve their country and and you know get amongst it and and that's definitely the reason i thought it was an opportune moment for me to join join the royal marines um but yeah things were slowing down there was no no real deployments or anything going on and and i had a great time but you're starting to do this this cycle every year of doing certain training and certain um deployments and i was just yeah it's time to leave so I, I put my notice in actually on that deployment in norway so after doing a week of snow plowing i was like i'm, I'm kind of done with this let's uh let's get out of here what did you go on to do so pretty much uh you know what i'm doing now what i what i described at the beginning of the podcast of spending my time in the mountains and and trying to trying to get money from it but um i i did a little bit of rope access work. Um, and then over the years, slowly, um, I, I've not been doing that anymore to the last three years. I haven't, two years, I haven't been on the ropes at all. Um, so I, I teach base jumping as well, which is, um, and run a few courses like that to, um, to help other base jumpers learn the right way. So things like that, you know, I've got my, yeah, lo lots of pies fingers and lots of pies i think you know and obviously we're going to go on to talk about the six north faces and i hope we can do that in detail but i am interested in the teaching base jumping thing because it just feels like you know as i understand it i've never had a canopy above my head mm. but it feels like the sort of thing that you know you go and do your 200 skydives and then you go and yep. jump off a bridge and all of this and all of that and that used to be the way it was done whereas now there are these established methods like coming on a course with you mm. to become a base jumper but it's such a massive responsibility for you isn't it i mean there is no margin for error at any point yeah i mean that that margin for error um is an interesting saying and i think there are some times where there is literally no margin for error but but in the course you know, things are very slow and they progress very slowly and you only go on to another step or learn an extra bit once you've cemented in that bit before. Um, and I kind of describe a lot of it, um, like if you're standing on the edge of a motorway, you can stand on the edge of the motorway and most likely you'll be fine. You know, you take one step forward and you get hit by a truck. It's really easy not to take that one step forward. Like you have to do something really, really wrong to have to take that one step forward and get hit by a truck. So in base jumping, there are certain things that you can do that 100% will be really, really, will have a really, really bad outcome. But a lot of those things are really easy not to do. So for example, when you're putting on your your rig, you have um, a bridle, a bit of material that's connected to what some people would say a drogue parachute. It's not. It's it's called a pilot chute, and it pulls out your mane. If you were to step into your harness and that drogue, that pilot chute, was in your harness, you know, in your leg loop, 
it's not going to deploy. And people have died like that. But it's really easy just to check and not let that happen. But it still happens. So, so yeah, I mean, if, if we go through our checks, if we check each other off, buddy checks, if we, if we learn correctly, you know, these mistakes shouldn't happen. I th- and I guess that's where, you know, a lot of mountain sports, mountain athletes, whatever you want to call them, Mm. I think that's where it's that middle ground, isn't it? You know, when you're learning, you're so scared of messing it up that everything is check, 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 check. When you're elite, you've made it that far because everything is check, check, check. But it seems to me that it's that middle ground where you go, oh, I've got this now. I don't need a buddy to check me anymore. I've done this a hundred times. That's where it all starts to go wrong. Complacency 100% kills. Um. And it's something I alluded to on the first podcast that we did. I talked right at the end. I don't think you published it, but a, a graph called the Kruger-Dunning effect. And it talks about um, uh, experience on one end of the graph um, and how much risk you're, you're willing to take on the other side. So the more experience you get, the more risk you're willing to take. Because, you know, three years in, you think, oh, I've had no accidents whatsoever. I've got three years of experience. I'm an absolute legend. I can do some crazy stuff now, take a lot of risk. And at that point, you have an accident because you're complacent. You've got three years of experience, which actually isn't that much. Um, You're willing to take some crazy risk. You have an accident. Hopefully, that accident is enough that you can continue jumping if you want to. You know, it hasn't broken you or worst case killed you. Um, And then you find your plateau. You find how much risk you're willing to accept, but your experience continues. So that, that graph plateaus, it flattens out. And I think for a lot of people, my wife, myself, a lot of friends, it is literally at that three mark point. We, we have an incident and we realize, okay, we cannot take it a step further than that. Um, it's just really, really hard to to learn without having that experience yourself, you know. And I think I think that's common for a lot of things. People will tell you, keep on telling you, keep on telling you, don't do this, don't do that. But a lot of people just need to learn for themselves because that's that's the best tool for learning is is experience. It's just unfortunate that within base jumping, um, learning a mistake like that for yourself is is usually pretty pretty dramatic and have you i mean what you know you obviously have because yeah to turn around at the top of the matterhorn after a 12 hour schlep you know yeah you could have just jumped but you didn't and Mm. i'm sure you made the right decision but would you have done that five years earlier and what and what were those mistakes yeah quite quite possibly um so the first time when we were talking about peer pressure earlier the first time i really I didn't, I didn't actively feel the pressure. People weren't going, oh, you should jump, you should jump. But it's that group mentality. Um, and that was a, an, an event in Turkey. And it was a very technical wingsuit flight and jump. Um, and, the most, and it was super windy, uh, which is like a no-go normally within, within wingsuiting and base jumping. So the first guy went who was the most experienced because he had done that sort of thing before, not a problem. And then slowly, one by one, like, well, if he went, I'll go. And if he he survived, then I'll go. And there was only two of us out of 10. 
at the end, you said, not for me. And that was the first time I really thought this group mentality is can be a dangerous thing, you know? Um, and the incident that I had three years in, um, it was in the White Cliffs of Dover, Beachy, Beachy Head. Um, and I decided to do an aerial off a cliff, which is, um, I, I decided to do my first aerial off a cliff, which is a no-go. You know, you normally learn off a bridge because if your parachute opens the wrong way, you can fly underneath the the bridge. Um, whereas if you do it off a solid object like a cliff, you can't fly underneath it, you, you hit it. Um, and I walked away. Um, I had a hole in my parachute um, so big I could, I could crawl through it. Um, I hit the cliff. I kicked off. I used my rear risers to try and turn the canopy. Um, so even though, you know, I massive, massively messed up and, and this happened, it was all the training, using my risers, quick reactions, you know, being focused on, on getting out of this situation um, that led me to, to walk away at the end of the day. Have you ever been deterred? Have you ever thought, I've done a lot of this, I've filled the cup, I don't need to do this anymore? Yeah. So for me, it's like, it's, it's almost like a numbers game, isn't it? Like, the more you do, the more likely something's going to happen. And I, I did an event the other day in Kuala Lumpur off the tower, and people were doing 20 jumps a day. I did four, you know, and I was just like, I did four, four a day for a couple of days, but people were racking up up to a hundred jumps in those four days. And I just, I don't feel the need to continuously jump. And almost like yesterday I did a shoot as well. And they were like, oh, let's do another one. Let's do another one. And I was like, you know, one, one's enough. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't feel the need to push myself. But I mean, that's, that's on like a day-to-day uh, basis but um but in general i i don't see myself stopping because i tick one project off and i've from that one project i found another five that i want to do or five ideas that have come from it so so let's talk about the six north faces because that was where i first became aware of you um i think you've maybe done one or two and this is like a long time ago mm. um no, it started a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, but it's not an easy thing. And I think, you know, for anyone who's listening who who has no idea what the six north faces are and why they're relevant, you know, outside of jumping, what are they and why are they significant? Mm. So the six great north faces of the Alps, uh, described by Gaston Rebuffet, probably butchered his name, uh, in a book called Starlight and Storm. And... He describes these six north faces, but in particular, a single route on each one of those that he thinks is a great, you know, route that um, would create a list of six climbs that would be, you know, a spe- spectacular achievement for, for any alpinist to, to to climb. So I climbed the, the north face of the Eiger, the, the 1938 route, with a school friend of mine when I was still serving, actually, I, I had leave from a deployment. So I went straight to the North Face and the conditions matched up. Um, and when I was climbing this, I could see the mushroom, which is a, a detached pillar of, of rock that's kind of steps out from the North Face. And I knew that was a really famous um, wingsuiting location. 
So I came back to do it that summer. So I thought, well, I've climbed the north face of the Eiger. I've jumped from the north face of the Eiger. There's five other north faces. Let's see if it's, it's all possible. So slowly over seven years, it took me to, to climb them and then, and then jump. Uh, and it became about not necessarily jumping them in the same day because the conditions needed are, are different, but climbing the north face and then jumping from the highest exit point um, on that mountain. So it took me a while. Yeah, and the way you describe it, you know, is quite, um, well, it's almost quite humble. But I think, you know, it's such, it's such a significant achievement for any alpinist, as you say, to climb, to climb them, but also to jump from them. I mean, no one's ever done it before. No one's jumped all six, as I understand. No, I mean, thanks very much, man. Um, yeah, people have, um, you know, jumped from various exit points, but I don't think, well, actually, Pisbedil, nobody had ever jumped from. So, because um, it's a very dome shaped mountain. So I had to do that without the wingsuit, but I was the first person to jump from that mountain. Um, so, yeah, nobody had jumped all six mountains and nobody had climbed the six. You know, it's, it's a really niche thing to do but it was a project that suited me and i was like I, I would like to do it so eric jones actually you know was um had soloed the north face of the eiger and and he was the first person to ever jump from the eiger so eric jones the the famous soloist and i think he's 85 now absolute legend so how come it took you seven years uh partly because i was still serving for the first three years i think um Finding partners, conditions, you know, as I said, there's a lot of setbacks. Tried the Drew three times, the Matterhorn three times, Pisbedil twice. Like, you know, and it's if you get a weather window that I can take that's a week long and you failed on that week, then yeah, you gotta wait till next year. So took a while. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And I mean, open forum with this question, but can you just tell me, you know, like you say, you failed twice on some, three times on another. Like Mm. what went wrong? What are the stories? The stories. So what are some of the good stories? (laughs) Um, the Drew, we had rock four on the first or second pitch really early on and it, and it cut one of the ropes. So that was, that was that, um, the, the Matterhorn is, is kind of a funny, not funny rescue story. (laughs) So I went with a a partner that I'd not climbed with before, but seemed like a really nice dude. We're in the the winter hut and he's on the top bunk yeah he's on the top bunk I'm I'm on the bottom bunk um and he jumps off and as he jumps off actually I'll leave that he jumps off he lands and he he clutches his arm and he goes Tim this is serious 
I was like, what? And I, I heard him like hit the door that was to his left as he jumped off. And I was like, he just sprained his ankle or something. He's looking for an excuse not to do this North Face tomorrow. And um, and he's he's going white and he's holding his wrist and, and he shouts again. I'm like, what? What's wrong, mate? And he goes and he shouts this time, this is really serious. <laughs> and uh, I jump off and um, I get him to open his hand and there's a chunk missing from his forearm and it's starting to piss out with blood and i go oh, okay that's that's pretty serious i'll give you that mate and he's he as he jumped he caught his wrist or his forearm on a clothes peg on the door and it's and there's now a chunk of flesh on my on my sleeping bag <laughs> so so I, I open his little med kit and he's um it's always been like a survival tip for it to keep a tampon um because it's so much material there. It's obviously sterile. So, And he has a tampon in his med kit, and it was perfect. It, like The chunk that was missing was as big as a tampon, so I stuffed the tampon on his, in his forearm, bandaged it up, and we, uh, we got the heli out. Um, and then he, he spent two hours in surgery that day. So while I was waiting for him, I got on the phone to a few friends, and then the next day we were back on the north face of the, the Matterhorn. So... It was, it was, the conditions were too good to wait. I needed to, <laughs> I needed to get back on it. Keen. <laughs> yeah. And what about the successes? You know, what were the highlights? I mean, obviously, I'm sure the jumps are amazing, but what were the highlights yeah. and what felt like the biggest wins? So <clears throat> I went in and out of, of, um, be, of, of training. So the Matterhorn felt really, good for me because I'd been training a lot that season. Um, the Eiger was the first one. I'd only ever done one Scottish grade five winter climb before. Um, so a friend of mine really, you know, pulled me through a lot of that. Um, and then the Drew, uh, a friend of mine had just come back from a tour, six month deployment. Um, and his head wasn't in the right place. It was role reversal in that sort of situation. Like he said, yeah, you know, I, I can continue seconding, but I'm really not feeling uh, the lead. So the majority of it, I, I led until it, until I was like burnt out. And then, and then he smashed up the last, um, the last few cruxes. Um, and that slowed us down. So we got caught in a storm. Um, we abseiled off. Like when we summited, our, our metal work was buzzing. You know, the, the hairs on our arms were, were sticking up from the from the electrical storm. It was like feeling pretty serious. Abseiled off in the storm. And, um, you know, waterproofs only do so much, but when you're retrieving rope with your arms up, pulling it down, and the water's literally, you're literally in a stream in on the, on the south face, just abseiling, nothing is dry. And it was hours and hours of that, just, you know, abseiling onto the glacier and you're just, absolutely soaked through so it was, i was really happy to be with um another another marine on on that in that sort of situation you know and then the um the grand Jurass at the end as well that that was pretty tough for me i'd spent four months away that year and that was the first time climbing rock that year got on the on the north face of the grand Jurass. so that was so i was really appreciative of um, of joe on that climb as well. We, we were going slow because of me. Um, and he, he really, really helped me get through that climb. So yeah, thanks to him. And one thing I don't think I've ever asked you is 
so you climb up as a two, you jump off the top. Mm. What what do they do? See ya. <laughs> um, so a few different situations over over the different climbs. Um, because as I was saying, the conditions for the climb are different often to the jump. Like we can climb in wind. I can't jump in wind. So often I need to come back. So Treshim, uh, I stashed my rig on the summit the day before. Um, and Treshim has got a, got a very easy way off the south face. So I flew down in a minute. I had the, the tea waiting for, for when Charlie Absell back down to the car a couple of hours later. <laughs> but yeah, other other times I'd come back with a, a friend who jumps. Uh, so we both jumped off uh, like the Grand Jurassic together um, via the South Face. Um, Hamish joined me, Hamish Frost, a great photographer, joined me on the my last piece of the whole puzzle, which was wingsuiting from the, from the summit of the Matterhorn. Um, and he very kindly took my rope and, uh, and went back down with another partner. So, um, yeah, various different ways about going, going about it. But yeah, no, normally we jump down with all our gear, like the Grand Jurassic, you obviously need rope, crampons, harness, uh, screws and everything. And then we, um, we separate that between us and, and fly back down with it. And what is it about? that kind of power alpinism for want of a better phrase that yeah. does it for you i mean that is exactly the phrase did you just make that up no i got it from leo all oh, right yeah that's good <laughs> no no that is, that is exactly the phrase that we use but um i, I don't know it's, it's com- i love the combination i love how niche it is um and the projects that you can come up with um but yeah it's just you know, I'm not a particularly um, good wingsuiter. You know, I haven't got that many wingsuit skydives. I, I do my own thing, and I'm good at my own little niche side of things. So maybe that's how I find a way to to um, to better myself, to, to do something that stands out a bit. Um, yeah, so it's same same with climbing. You know, I'm I'm not an amazing climber um but i love doing these these really weird remote stuff around the world that um yeah it's my sort of niche style and you know i'm really interested in your lifestyle in a way and we don't have to get into the detail of it but you know there's the alex honolds of this world who are making millions because they are who they are but it mm. seems to me like you do manage to carve out a living from doing whatever you want every day. How the hell do you do that? I mean, I think this also comes back to when people say, oh, you know, it'd be my dream to do this or to do that. And it's like, well, it's your dream, but you're not willing to sacrifice anything to do it. You know, like I was sleeping in my car, eating pasta, sleeping in the laybys. And I still, I go on a trip and I still, like Mexico two years ago, still sleeping in laybys every night, you know? So it doesn't come without sacrifices. It's just what I want to do. So I'll sacrifice a, a lot to be able to, to do these sort of things. Um, you know, slowly it's getting a little bit easier. And as I get older and as I make a little bit more money, I'll put myself up in a hotel every now and again. But, um, 
but yeah it's 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 a it's how how much how uncomfortable you're willing to be compared to how much money you're willing to spend um and i'll i'll often save the money because the the more money that i can save the more trips i can go on you know the the cheaper i make something um means the more i can do it yeah and it's the cliche but it i don't know if it's true i mean you are living the dream right if you look at the flight phrase literally i mean so, so yeah there's i've always you know as a kid growing up skateboarding i'd always want to be a sponsored athlete inverted commas but and 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 i have achieved that you know but as i say it comes with sacrifices i think living the dream would be doing the same thing but in a five-star hotel and business class flights everywhere but um <laughs> it's what i want to do so yeah it's yeah we're getting there yeah and you know total tangent and segue now and i did warn you that i was going to ask you about this but I think one of the most interesting things for me anyway that you've done over the last year is, you know, when Putin decided to uh, wander into Ukraine, you went despite, you know, you were a civilian technically and despite FCO advice, you wandered into Ukraine. Why did you do that and what for? What happened? Yeah, I mean, last last year I I cancelled um, a lot of plans to 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 head out there. Um, a lot of climbing plans, a lot of courses. Um, yeah, I, I I dropped a lot just to to head out there. Much to the yeah, much to dismay of of uh, lots of lots of friends and family. But um, I, I I felt compelled. Um, as did a lot of people that I was out there with, you know, and I think there's, there's quite a few different reasons people go out there. Um, whether it was their military experience, uh, ego, um, being compelled friends or family who live out in the East. Um, and I think it was a little bit of everything for me. Um, I just, I think that is the biggest question, isn't it? Why? But, um, a little bit of everything was the was the reason I, I needed to go out there. And what, you know, <laughs> we spoke about this before, right? I'll break the fourth wall. And you know, mm. while you were there, you and I were in touch a little bit. And you were always mm. rightly and justifiably super cagey about exactly where you were or what you were doing. Um, and so I'm aware that there's only so much you're going to give me, but I'm going to push you because I feel like I can. You, mm. you know when to say no, but what were you doing? Um... <laughs> all sorts <laughs> so i i you know no no matter what you're doing out there there's there's a lot of humanitarian work um that you just you you end up helping out with um but i i was on the front lines um yeah we we had a small team that was uh, i was working on the front lines with various uh there was, was yeah a very very small group of us um a lot of different nationalities few brits few americans um and all all ex-military so we yeah we we signed up uh to the legion and um yeah getting getting stuck in on the front lines and 
you know, you've said it was a bit of everything for you as to why you went, but how much of it was, I'd really quite like to go and be a soldier again. Yeah, and that 100% that was part of it. Uh, that's that's what I would... Um, so one of the reasons a lot of people went because they, they joined up for, you know, during the Herrick deployments during Afghan, um, and they, they've still got a, an itch they need to scratch. Um, that was definitely part of it. Um, I don't think that, that itch will ever go, though. How long were you there? Um, total of four months. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that, that was the, the four months before um, I climbed Grand Giraffe. Um, so, yeah, didn't, didn't touch any rock that, that year and then went on to a, went on to a big wall. So it was, I was pretty, uh, pretty out of the, off the sharp end. And, um, yeah, I needed to get pulled up that thing. I'm going to play with a cliche now and you're going to roll your eyes at me or laugh, but there's no other way to phrase it. But mm. do you think you're addicted to that feeling? You know, the feeling I'm talking about. Um, I don't know whether you think the feeling in war is potentially the same as the feeling in, in base jumping or, you know, the risk side of things. I think there there's a lot of similarities, but I, I, whatever that is, because it's not necessarily adrenaline. You know, I only feel adrenaline base jumping if something's gone wrong, but it's maybe just summed up by by risk and... I think maybe an addiction there's probably a, there is a proper definition for it, but is something that's something you need to keep on doing that's detrimental to your health. And so far it hasn't been detrimental to my health. So <laughs> I don't know whether you can call it an addiction or not. Yeah. And I didn't use that word and it was very deliberate because I think that is a kind of trite cliche, but I don't know whether for you it's, is there like a companionship, you know, for just to, for me, it's high functioning teams. Like I get off on high functioning teams and being yeah. part of one. It's probably what motivates me. Amazing. But yeah. What is it for you that compels you to keep climbing up dangerous mountains, jumping off dangerous mm. exits? I use dangerous in inverted commas and heading to the front mm. line of a, you know, significant global conflict. So that's that's really interesting what you said about about teamwork and that's that's really cool. Um, maybe for me, it's mitigating that risk. Um, <clears throat> so all of my technical wingsuit exits have taken a lot of training, a lot of calculations. You know, literally trigonometry and stuff to figure out whether it's whether it's possible, and that's mitigating the risk. Risk getting the experience to pull that off. And maybe in a war zone, that mitigation is being a good soldier, working with your team, knowing or training better than your than your enemy, um, and having better skills, drills, and equipment. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe it's that mitigation of of risk. That, that's my uh, yeah, the part that I will keep on trying to improve. I was going to ask you whether or not you're planning on going back, but 
the fact that you've told me that you've been and this is going out to quite a lot of people suggests that you're not. Um, I've got a busy year this year. Uh, <laughs> I've got a lot planned. I think about it every day. Um, really do. But, um, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I, I, I was going to say I don't want to dig too far, but I do. Like, I can see your face and everybody else is just listening, right? But there's something about being there that is bigger than you that I sense. It's not just, you don't want to just go and, I don't know, use this phrase very kindly, but deliberately, like, you don't want to just go and play soldier. Um, I, I do I do want to play soldier. That's, that's as I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm honest about things. That is definitely a part of it. But, you know, a lot of friends fought in Syria as a volunteer. That didn't compel me. The, the time I spent in Afghan was a job. I didn't feel any connection to that country. Ukraine, I do. So on top of being um, wanting to play soldier, um, way bigger than that is is uh, humanity and, and me wanting to, to, to help, um, to do something in the scope of being a soldier because I'm sure there are things that I could do that are probably way more effective than than being just one more rifle on the front line. Um, but it's, you know, being out there um, is really, it's, it's, it's crazy to see, man. It's just, just even from a morale sort of standpoint, you know, people coming up to you in the bar and, and, and breaking down and, and uh, buying you, you know, 10 of us a meal because, I don't know his story. I don't know whether he lost his son or a brother or a dad, but but um, yeah, it's it's um, it's pretty crazy scenes. Yeah. Do you think you said before that you know family, friends, etc., weren't that keen on you going or tried to dissuade you? Do you think people understand? Do you think people listening understand? I mean, you know, they'll have their own opinions. The, the thing that I I, I don't care about politics, you know, I don't. So there's there's probably quite a few people out there saying, you know, America was pushing for it, NATO was pushing for it. it to me, that doesn't matter because there are innocent people. The, the reason why it happened doesn't matter. It did happen and it shouldn't be happening. And it is black and white to me, good versus evil, you know. So the reason doesn't matter. The, the fact that it is happening is is enough um and you know it started with me telling my parents that you know i'm not going to be on the front line i'm going to be you know doing doing a, a little bit of work way away you know maybe some humanitarian stuff and then slowly but surely it got a little bit close well slowly and surely i told them i got a little bit closer and closer and, and then boom there's a video of me in a gunfight but, but yeah. And so that we understand, or so that I understand, why is there a need for anonymity and, you know, nobody knowing that you're there? I mean, while I'm out there, because people know I've been there now. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm curious about that too, but yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that are all over Instagram about it, and I've, I've, started to post maybe one or two little pictures without any real information. 
but I never wanted it to be a focus on on me or you know ego look at me with this nice new rifle look at me with this javelin or n law or whatever so I, I didn't want that to to distract from why i was there um and a lot of people are on instagram posting that sort of things and that's great for publicity it's great for fundraising um but you you can read the comments that they're writing and you just think you are literally just there to play soldier and i never want it to be about that um so yeah i, I kind of been a little bit quiet about it uh, but the you know keeping quiet about the locations and stuff like that is just all operational security it's it's not something that needs to be published so when when i was running um my small team in ukraine there there's a lot of people doing silly things and just things like putting stickers on grenades like and i'd get a grip of these people i'm not going to swear I'd get a grip of them and say, does that give any tactical advantage? Because if it doesn't, why have you got it on there? And it used to really grip me. Just that, and that's playing soldier. That's just pretending that's not what we were there for and not what, it, what I wanted in my team. <sighs> I find it so fascinating because it's so complicated. I mean, were you legally allowed to be there from a British perspective? Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of Brits out there. Um, <clears throat> we sign, so the difference between a mercenary and um, and a soldier, a mercenary through the Geneva Convention is is someone that gets paid way more than somebody who's part of the country. Uh, sorry, that was part of the, the, the National Army. We got paid the same. Uh, we had signed on, so we had paperwork. Um, a mercenary is also um, not part of the, the the army, you know, the national army. It's it's a private company. So the Russian um, government would say that we're all mercenaries, but by definition, we're not. Yeah. They can talk. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Don't get me started. Not getting into politics. But um, I don't normally ask this, but, you know, you're a busy boy. Like you say, you've got, you know, your fingers in a lot of pies. What What's mm. the plan? Um, so I've got a, the next big one is a, a trip out to Pakistan to, to climb uh, Layla Peak. So, <clears throat> yeah, beautiful, beautiful looking mountain. And, um, yeah, just above 6,000 meters. Uh, what's really special about this one is, I mean, we all, we're hoping to fly from the summit. Um, number one, it'll be a flight literally from the summit, which Aconcagua wasn't, it was a little bit below the summit. Um, and there'll be five of us jumping. So potentially, uh, quite a few of us jumping at the same time, flying, following each other which has never really been done at altitude before. So, or definitely not at this sort of altitude. So it'll be, yeah, hopefully a really special trip. And, and I've never been to that part of the world and, and climbed in those sort of mountain ranges before. So really looking forward to it. Nice. There's a, there's just a little part of me that sits back there that just thinks, oh God, I'm so jealous of all this, but. Come on board, mate. (laughs) 
you almost threw me off the top of a um, cooling tower with a rig on my back, but it didn't play out. <laughs> that was a joke, not joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think my time is done for that sort of thing. Um, Taking reckless chances. I trust you. That's my... <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Last two questions, as always with mm. this podcast. What scares you? Um, <clears throat> that numbers game, that statistics. You know, sooner or later, I think something will happen. Um, that's a good question. Because I look at it as as I don't I don't like I don't look at luck. I don't think of like spiritual things or fate or you know, gut feeling to me isn't a sixth sense. It's a subconscious pointer in your head telling you. So I d I don't think any of that sort of thing scares me. Um the unknown, just maybe just purely the unknown, because some things you can't mitigate, some things you can't foresee. Um, but I, I, I literally, I try and think of a lot of eventualities, you know. Can you remember the TV show Scrubs? Yeah. And there's that, um, was it Michael Fox, Michael J. Fox, the guy with Parkinson's now, I can't remember which dis disability he has. But so in he played um, a, an actor in it. And he had some sort of like OCD where he just thought about every eventuality. And I think he was in a surgery and a bird hit the window and where everyone else just like shot up and, and dropped their, their instruments, he was just carrying on because he saw that as an eventuality. He saw that as something that could happen. And I just love that sort of idea that, and, and it has to a lesser degree, it kind of has happened. You know, I'm, I'm at an exit point. And I think about, well, what if my foot slips now or, or you know, there's a wind gust left or right or my friend catches his, his hair on my head. I don't know, all these little weird things. And I think, what would happen in that situation? How would I mitigate that? What would I do against that? You know, what is that outcome uh, and can I change it at all? So, so the, the unknown is, is a fear, but I, I think about that a lot, that hopefully I've got a lot of those unknowns kind of covered. Yeah. And I can see that in you. And I, I find that really interesting and inspiring is the wrong word. I just, I respect it. That's maybe the word. Cause Appreciate like, it, man. Yeah. you know, Waldo, who we both know, Waldo Etherington, he won't mind me saying this cause he's told this story on this podcast, but <laughs> you know, I can't remember what mountain it was that he jumped off with his speed wing in his first week of flying or whatever it was. And he managed to wrap his lines mm. around the GoPro mount on his helmet. Like, you know. I think that was with me. That was Pisbadil. Was it with you? Yeah. I mean, he said he was like me. Yeah, because he flew down from Pisbadil. And he, well, if it wasn't, then it's happened multiple times. But it happened on Pisbadil. Yeah. Yeah. And, that and it, it happened to a lesser degree. Well, he had a failed launch on Mount Malungi in Malawi like two days before we were supposed to climb this big wall and the state of his ankle, just how swollen and black it was. And then two days later, he was climbing one and a half thousand meters of rock with me. And I was just like, how is this guy managing? It's insane. Yeah. yeah. Well, he hasn't quite evolved properly. So maybe his pain threshold doesn't work like ours. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I just mean it's interesting because he, you know, he's a very Ooh. capable, competent guy, but he just got too keen too fast. And I'm sure you've spent, you know, I'm sure dozens of times you've thought, I've got a GoPro on my helmet. I need to make sure my lines don't catch around that or whatever it might be. You know, those kind of little things. It doesn't. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a basic, basic one. Uh, to the point where, yeah, some some jumps I just it's it's nice to put the camera away for a while. And I know generally speak gen, generally speaking, Waldo doesn't fly with a GoPro. He's just like I don't want the distraction, which is a hundred percent an awesome awesome way to be. You know, a lot of what I do, I need to film it, I need to publish it, whatever. But now and again, it's really refreshing just to take the GoPro off and say, you know, this one's just for me. This jump's just for me. But um. Yeah, there's a lot to it with, you know, the wind direction. If you're throwing your pilot chute, if the wind's coming from right to left and you throw with your right arm, it can get wrapped up. Um, you can buy snag snagless mounts for GoPros or put a sock around the, around the little knobble for it. Job done. Easy as that. Put a sock around it. <laughs> so, yeah, all these little things though, you're right, man. It's all these little things that, that we, we think about. Yeah, I'm not going to turn it into a self-help thing, but it kind of that translates through to everyday life as well, right? Like, I don't know, I I do that with everything. Yeah. What's going to happen? What's the potential outcome? How can I solve it before it's gone wrong? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's how you get a, get a team that works so efficiently together. Yeah. Anyway, we're at, we're over an hour. I'm not going to go into all that. Last question, Timmy Howe. Um, yeah. What brings you hope? Hope. Jeez, what is what is hope? What what would you what would you say hope is, dude? I deliberately don't want to say anything. Oh, jeez, man! I've asked everyone what this question. I I I hope that I'm... maybe knowledge or acceptance of your own abilities and your own strength and determination. Like in, in a team, you know, I often climb and jump in a team of two. And the people that I jump with, I know are I can rely on them and they can rely on me. Same in a climbing team. So whatever sort of situation we get ourselves in, whether it's a storm or stuck on a ledge or an accident, you know, my wife has got in a, a pretty bad accident in, in South Africa and I've been stuck on ledges and storms for for 12 hours or more and just knowledge that the team can rely on each other. You know, we can both get through it. Um, and that, that, I think, gives you hope, doesn't it? You know, you can get through it. Um, yeah. Again, like, I don't believe in that sort of spiritual thing. So where where somebody might say oh, i've i've got hope that we'll get through it because of you know a greater meaning or something like for me it's just acceptance you know i've i've been in in trenches where we've been getting shelled and i i kind of i don't accept that i'm going to die that's um, that's not what i'm saying i'm just accepting that the chances of us getting hit are quite low because we're in a slit trench that's you know half a meter wide, and for a for a mortar bomb to hit directly there is pretty low. And I'm just kind of acceptant of it. It's 
it is what it is. So interesting. I had an inkling that you might, struggle is the wrong word, but just like find that question challenging. And I don't, I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't. Is that I, why? Why you asked it? Well, I ask everyone, and it's amazing. Yeah, no, no. Answers, but um, yeah, because it's varied so wildly. But I just mm. figured you just. It seems like you're so stoic that you don't have or need hope. No, that's why I kind of asked you to define it because I I don't think I use it in a. Don't think I've ever used that sort of word in that sort of that sort of way. No, it's it's everything to me is a bit more numbers and experience. You know, everything I, I work off is. I wouldn't say statistics because I don't like literally look at oh what's the statistics that we're going to get hit. It's just you know a feeling of like well actually if you think about it, the chances of this happening are really really low. So you know that's you, we might as well do it sort of thing. But, Ace, yeah, we'll leave it there. Nice one. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're immensely helpful and help us to reach a wider audience.